This is Talk of the Town on Magic 590, also heard on 100.5. I'm Bob Cudmore. Joining us is Chris Churchill of the Albany Times Union, columnist in the uh, Albany Times Union. Uh, The big story out of Albany seems to be murder yeah and a new police chief right, uh, right what are your thoughts on what's going on in the capital city well i mean the 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 kind of spate of of uh, violent crime the city has seen this summer i think has taken a lot of people by surprise and uh, has a lot of people trying to figure out what exactly is is causing it um it's kind of it's kind of interesting that you know there's a police chief changeover just as this seems to be happening you could argue that it's kind of the worst possible timing that, you know, this would be a time when the police mm-hmm. department would want consistency to kind of deal with the problem and face the problem. But that that isn't what it has. No. Now, in fact, you did one column in which you wondered why the interim police chief, uh, Robert Sears, w- was not uh, considered for the post of the full time chief. That's right. Yeah. I, and, the, and the piece, I said that the incoming chief, assuming that he's appointed by the council or approved by the council, uh, you know, it seems to have be have a fine resume. Seems to be w- very well qualified. Seems you know perfectly able and, and and perfect for the job. The only point I was raising is that the Albany already had a chief that was exactly had all those same qualifications. You know, he had, Robert Sears was a uh, twenty year member of the force. He uh, according to almost everybody, was an outstanding interim police chief or acting police chief. So the question was, why bring in somebody from Michigan when you have somebody right in Albany who's who's doing the job so ably? Mm. Well, but he had a, an issue about where he lived. He right. Lived yeah, there's of- a residency requirement in the city, and uh, he lives in Glenmont. Mm-hmm. Um, and he did not want to move his family into the city, and that was that was one of the holdups. I don't think that was the only holdup. I think I think that um, City Hall wanted it, wanted a change, and I think that is uh the reason that Sears is no longer the chief but the residency issue was part of the mm. was part of the equation there I, i've heard people say you know this is albany you know a, a man coming in from somewhere else yeah. is not going to be accepted by the uh, police here i mean uh the man who's coming in we actually haven't uh, named him um uh, Chief Haw- Eric Hawkins. Eric Hawkins, yeah, of, of yeah. Uh, Southfield, Michigan. He's yeah. an African American. He would be the second uh, African American Albany police chief. I actually remembered John Dale, who was mm-hmm. uh, there, but he he was a local guy, and Eric Hawkins is not. Well, and I get to get to the point. There are some who say that you know that he's just not going to make it because of that. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure about that. I mean, it is true that Albany tends to be an uh, insular city, and that. Um, you know, city government positions are usually represent filled by people who uh, are from the city. Although, you know, that has begun to change. Kathy Sheehan is not a, not an Albany native. Mayor mm, Sheehan, right? Um, some of the department heads that she has appointed are not Albany natives. Um, but I do think that there's some. I think it's fair to say there's anger in the police department about it. Um, it does when you pick somebody from outside your organization, whether it's a company or a radio station or whatever. I think there are going to be employees who work there who say, "Well, what are you saying? Are you saying that nobody within this department is good enough to do the job?" And I think people get their back up a little bit. Mm. So yeah, the it'll be interesting to see what kind of reaction 
he gets, Mr. Hawkins gets, and if he can win over the department. The mantra for the Albany uh, police under Mayor Sheehan has been community policing, Mm -hmm. getting out into the community. Is that working? I mean, there are people who like it and people who don't. I th- I think it's generally generally working. I mean, I, it's a community policing is kind of a vague term, and I think mm-hmm. it you know, depending on who you ta- you are talking to, you get kind of a different definition. But I, in some ways, it's just old fashioned policing. It's walking the bead. It's getting to know the people in the neighborhood so that you have connections and sources there, so that when something happens, you know who to go to. I mean, that part of it is. That part of it, I think, is commonsensical. I, I don't see why that's controversial at all. The nine homicides so far, as, as we record this at, at any rate, um, are they making progress in solving them? I know some of them have been solved. Are yeah, they- I mean, it's a case-by-case thing, right? I, there has been talk that they're not getting a lot of cooperation from witnesses and people mm-hmm. in, in, the, in the neighborhoods. Um, but, I, you know, I think that, I think that it's a case-by-case thing. It's hard to generalize. I think there was a, a piece in, uh, or in fact, I know there was a piece in the Times Union this week uh, quoting both Mayor Sheehan and the DA, David Soares, in which they seem to have different points of view on whether they're getting cooperation. They, right. Mayor Sheehan said, yeah, we're, you know, people are cooperating, but David Soares says, well, this is a real issue. Yeah, I think it is a real issue. I mean, I, you, you hear that a lot, that, that there are people who are not willing to cooperate. Um, and that's especially true, I think, when you have situations that may be gang-related, um, where there's 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 a, a culture of not you know quote unquote snitching that is that runs deep in some in some subcultures. Mm. Let me move on to uh, another column that you uh, did recently uh, that had an outcome that uh, probably in. Uh, at least in part because of your column, a man named Maurice Rucker was fired from his job at Home Depot after confronting a racist customer. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, he, Maurice Rucker was a 10-year employee of Home Depot. He was working in the garden department uh, one Thursday afternoon, I believe, when a man came in and a guy was kind of muttering, kind of being kind of a... Mm-hmm. And uh, the man had a loose dog in the store, so Maurice said to the man, you know, when you come into the store, we prefer that you're dog be leashed and the man just went nuts after that and just kind of unleashed a, a whole bunch of um, insults and you know uh, comments mm-hmm. on the lines of you know you wouldn't have a job if it wasn't for Donald Trump whatever that means exactly and Obama things and he said Maurice must live in the ghetto so his opinion doesn't matter all, all this sort of stuff and Maurice took it for a while but then eventually left his booth and confronted the man and uh, he was fired by Home Depot five days later. And their argument was that they don't want their employees confronting customers right. to pr- protect them. Uh, That's, it seems yeah, to be there. the Home Depot uh, spokesman said, you know, that that's that sort of situation could put other customers in danger, right? I mean, if you get, if you get the man angrier and then he goes and gets a gun or something horrible happens, mm-hmm. I think they they want their customers to. Uh, What's the word? De- 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 calm things down. Calm things down, yeah. And then, you know, but from Maurice's point of view, it's like how much was he supposed to take? And he didn't threaten the man necessarily or, or strike him or do anything. Mm-hmm. He just, you know, told him, got in his face and told him to leave the store. Ultimately, did, did Home Depot offer him his job back? They did, yeah. There was a, so when the column ran, there was just kind of this pretty mass, I mean, not to, you know, toot our own horn, but a fairly massive reaction. I mean, it was picked up by media outlets all over the 
all over the world, and um, and there was quite a lot of outrage. And Home Depot, I think, reacting to that outrage, um, offered Maurice's job back. And I have to say, one of the things that you know I heard from a lot of people who knew Mr. Rucker and knew him from Home Depot, and he just had st- uh, sterling recommendations from almost everybody I talked to. You know, he was in charge of the kids' program at the store. He was. Everybody said he was, you know, one of the one of the better employees there, and just a total gentleman, and um, and you know that I think that helped uh, make people even angrier about it. You know that, that he had worked there for ten years. I mean, this wasn't this. It wasn't like he had just walked in the door a week ago. And he's well known. He's a mu- local musician. Yeah, he's fairly well known. He's been in a few bands that people know. He's sixty years old, but he's a lead singer for a, like a rock rock country right. soul band. But. I, I gathered something you wrote that he's got another job. He does, yes. Um, so he turned down the job at Home Depot. Um, I think he felt that you know they were just trying to cover their tracks at that point, mm-hmm. um, that they weren't sincere in feeling any sort of uh, sorrow for firing him. Um, but in the, in the meantime, because of the, the attention, he got a number of other uh, requests for interviews, and one of those led to a job with the county probation department. So that's mm-hmm. where he's working now he's working with at-risk kids which is something that he really wanted to do he really likes working with kids he's a visual artist and i think he you know this as far as he's concerned this worked out very well (laughs) Uh, one of your columns this past week had to do with a trump t-shirt which caused an outside um, reaction like you wouldn't believe yeah this is this involves a t-shirt store in downtown troy that uh was having kind of a little put out a clearance rack on the sidewalk Trying to get rid of some merchandise that had been hanging around in the back for a while, and they they had some stuff left over from the 2016 campaign. So the, one of them was a "Make America Great Again" T-shirt with Trump's image on it. I, uh, one was a Bernie Sanders shirt. Mm-hmm. One was a Hillary Clinton shirt, or there were a few Hillary. But they, it was one one Trump shirt. And um, somebody walked by, saw it, was offended, came into the store, kind of angrily, you know, said something about Nazis and. And then uh, took a photo of the shirt, uh, uh, assuming this is the same man, uh, put the photo up online, said the people should boycott the store, said that, you know, they were uh, furthering the propaganda of a demagogue. And uh, that led to kind of a, you know, one of those one of these Facebook outrages right. where you have 400 comments and it's shared all over the place and the business is inundated with angry people. And, you know, and I my position was this is a little bit. A little bit silly. I mean, it's one T-shirt, you know, a $5 T-shirt on a clearance rack. Um, You know, and it's to me, it said something about this kind of intolerance that we have now toward other people's opinions and other people's thoughts. I mean, people can feel how they want to feel about Donald Trump, but the truth of the matter is he got 40, he won Rensselaer County. He won the county in which that T-shirt was being sold. Um you know, it, I, I've always argued that politics is about persuasion and about winning people over. And I think that when you just react this way, you kind of harden support for Trump or whoever else it is. I mean, you know, have a dialogue, talk yeah. to people, get to know them. Well, I think so. I mean, even reading some of the comments on your uh, Facebook page, you know, one, uh, I think it was a gentleman wrote in, well, he, that store has a new customer now. Yeah, you know, the, well, yeah. And that's the thing. The, the, the funny thing is it's not a political T-shirt store. Um, they usually, I mean, they most of their, sh- their sh- T-shirts say Troy on them or, you know, right. enjoy Troy or um, some version of that. 
and the funny thing now is they're probably going to get a lot of Trump supporters going in there looking for Trump shirts, and you know, but they're not there. They only it was just a one single T-shirt, and um, the stores apologized. I think they are um, fearful. You know, mm-hmm. these right. y- if you're a small business, it doesn't take too much of a downturn in, cu- in your customers to to put you, put you in deep trouble. You know, a uh, completely different uh, column uh, you did recently, paying congressional dues. The Capital District Congressman, Paul Tonko of mm-hmm. Amsterdam, who actually I've you know known for many, many years because yeah. I'm from Amsterdam. He's a popular guy. Popular guy. Uh, and other members of Congress like him, if I understand this correctly, from safe districts that have been sort of gerrymandered so that, you know, one party or another, in this case, the Democrats will win. But they're expected or pretty much told to raise money from donors to donate to the general cause, in That's this right. case of the Democratic Party. Right. And um, they're expected to and they're expected to for the their seats on committees. So if you get on a committee that is considered a, a prominent or you know a, a a plum assignment, you're expected to donate. You know, it's, I think in one of the memos that was uncovered, Tonko was expected to donate two hundred and fifty thousand dollars to the DCCC, which then uses that money on competitive races. So I thought it was interesting. I mean, I think that when you when you have a congressman like Paul Tonko who doesn't really have much of a challenge every two years, I mean, I don't think he's ever been in a close election because the, Demo- the mm. district is so heavily Democratic. I think the assumption is that, well, that guy, he must not need to be part of this kind of big money system that all the other congressmen have to be part of because they're in competitive races. But it doesn't work that way necessarily. I mean, the the congressmen from safe districts, and it's not just Paul Tonko; it's it's almost all of them, um, are expected to raise considerable amounts of money. They're expected, or what would happen to them? They wouldn't get well, the good committee. That's that's what some say. I mean, there's there's argument about that. I mean, I'm not sure if once you're on the committee, I, I described it as an expectation rather than a requirement. I'm not, I'm not sure that they would necessarily kick you off if you didn't pay your. Let's call it the, the dues. Some people call it a committee tax. Some people call it dues. Um, yeah, it's also a case by case basis. You know, I, mm-hmm. I, you know, the Tonko's office pointed out to me after the column ran that you know Bobby Rush, who's on the committee, has not paid any dues this year and has not suffered any consequence for it. And that may be that may be true. I haven't looked into that. But Bobby Rush is a congressman from Chicago who's been in the Congress for twenty five years. He may have earned enough status that they're not going to kick him off for not paying his dues. Uh. So you did hear, because I remember reading the column, you had not heard from Tonko's office. Yeah, they were, uh, one of the most frustrating things as a journalist is when people respond after the fact. You right. know, they don't, they don't respond well, when you're putting it together, and then they see it, and then they respond. So yeah. they, responded, they responded afterwards, yeah. What, what else did they have to say? Uh, they pointed out that uh, uh, Mr. Tonko is well qualified to be on the committee, that it wasn't just his dues alone that got him on it, that he... This is the Energy and Commerce Committee mm-hmm. that he has a background in in that in, in the energy field. Um, they pointed out that he's happy to donate to the DCCC because he wants Democrats to take back Congress. Yeah, uh, the House. Yeah, and um, you know the uh, points like that. You also spoke, I think, to a former congressman who apparently ran afoul of the system. Yeah, Richard Hanna from Utica. Up in Utica, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he was always a kind of a, re- a rebellious congressman. He's a Republican, but he was a pro-choice Republican. He didn't didn't really fit the party mold. Um, 
very well. But and one of the things he refused to do was to pay his dues, and he was never on a committee that you would that anybody would say has any real influence on policy or. Mm-hmm. And you know, part of what's what's kind of icky about the whole thing is that. So you get on a certain committee, you know, Energy and Commerce, which regulates uh, healthcare and food and drugs and all that sort of thing. And as soon as you get on that committee, the money flows in from industries that yeah. have business in front of that committee. And that's, yeah. that's one of the things that, that makes it troubling. And then you could see that in Tonko's donations. He didn't get, I think the year he got on the committee, his donations from the healthcare sector, you know, more than doubled. Um, and you, you know, I'm, congressmen sometimes say, "Well, those donations don't impact how I vote." And Tonko made that case afterwards. Um, but people like Richard Hanna say that's that's ludicrous. Of course they do. You know, you if nothing else, you're spending, you're getting their side of the story because you're spending time with them or talking to them, and you may not be getting the side of the story from somebody who's not donating. Mm-hmm. Um, so he says, "Of course that they." Of course, those donations influence votes, and I tend to believe it. I mean, you see evidence of that all the time in all layers of government everywhere, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, look at the Cuomo administration time and time again. You know, there's a state decision made, and then people do a little digging, and they figure out, oh, that company that was affected by the decision gave $25 million, you know, $2 million weeks earlier or whatever. So, you know, it's this is the same old story. And, well, you mentioned Governor uh, Andrew Cuomo. I see he's weighed in on the lemonade controversy. Yeah, the big controversy, right, out of Saratoga County. Right. Yeah. Well, let me see. The, as a young boy and his parents, uh, they park cars outside of the Saratoga fairgrounds. And, yeah, and the and boy, the boy had sold a... lemonade and snow cones and water. And Yeah, apparently some of the vendors within the... Um, the fair got upset because they were selling their lemonade for $7 and he was selling it for the bargain price of 75 cents and they thought that he was undercutting them. So they called the health department, which came and shut shut the boys' lemonade stand, stand down. Yeah. I, I was – and now Governor Cuomo says if need be, he'll pay for the permit. Yeah, yeah. And Jim Tedisco was in on this too. Yeah, well my, – My state senator. Uh, yeah, know. well, he's, he's – I think he's proposing a law that would say you can't yep. can't uh, keep kids from having lemonade stands or something along those, those lines. I mean, on the one hand, this has been – I mean, this was in the front page of the New York Post yesterday. This is – Another one of those stories that kind of has started in the capital region and, and traveled around. There's been a few of them lately, actually. Um, and you could say it's pretty silly on the one on one hand, but on the other hand, it does seem to be kind of as part of this trend of people just I, I don't know what to call it exactly. It's uh, maybe like a tattletale culture that's right. Where, where anytime anybody sees anything, they call it in right away. They call the authorities, and then authority rushes in. It's a lot of times it's the police, you know, who. Some kid is selling bottles of water on the sidewalk or whatever, and the police come in, and it's just—it just seems all unnecessary. Yeah, and but this also, I think, a, appeals to those who are against, you know, overregulation. Well, yeah, it's like this. What this health department's bothering a right? I mean, boy, and you know. even you know, it's—I guess it's Cuomo's offering to pay for the permit, but a lot of people would say, well, why do you need a permit? You know, why can't a kid just sell lemonade and, and snow cones? I guess I guess it's the snow cones that put it into the permit, <laughs> right. the permit category. I, I but know. you know, yeah, it yeah, it's one of those things where just I think people sometimes feel like you can't do anything without having to go get a license or a permit or you know some sort of official approval. You've been listening to Talk of the Town on Magic Five Ninety, also heard on One Hundred Point Five. Our guest Chris Churchill 
Albany Times Union columnist, read his columns Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Sundays in the TU. Uh, Next week, Talk of the Town will be on vacation, but we return in two weeks when our guest will be Schenectady Mayor Gary McCarthy. I'm Bob Cudmore.